Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chot. My guest today is Porajista Kakpur, a novelist and writer whose new book is a work of nonfiction. It is called Sick, a Memoir. Kakpur, an Iranian-American writer who is now 40 years old, has, for much of her life, struggled with health issues. She begins sick by saying she has, quote, never felt comfortable in her own body. She's often felt that something was wrong with it. She had more serious symptoms, too, lethargy and dizziness, joint and muscle pain, as well as some serious psychological issues, including insomnia. She was eventually diagnosed as having late-stage Lyme disease, and her book is a tale of why it took her so long to get diagnosed, why people with Lyme disease, especially women, are often doubted when they report their symptoms, and how she has balanced writing with her medical condition. It's also a meditation on a bunch of other things, like how you talk to friends and family about being sick, the connection between the psychological and the physical, traveling around America, and and really so much else. I, I read the book, and uh, I felt like I really wanted to have her on the show because it's really a fascinating book that kind of can't be summed up in some way, but uh, it's it's definitely worth reading. So Porchista joins me now. Uh, Porchista, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Isaac. Where where are you today and how are you feeling? Well, um, I'm here in a studio in Glendale, which is kind of funny. It's where my parents have been living um, and where I last got really sick um, due to some mold in their place, but also air quality. I was kind of laughing right now with a camera crew that's following me is that today's like really, really horrific air quality. It's 3 p.m. in Southern California in extreme heat and bad air quality. It's just like one of the worst things someone with my condition can do. But I'm learning to sort of go back to the way I was for years and sort of play nice with my disabilities and sort of endure it instead of letting my body go into a complete panic. Why is a camera crew following you? Oh, we have, uh, I'm in a feminist documentary, you could say, um, Cindy Anderson's next project, So Sick. I'm one of her four subjects of like, you know, um, women creatives who are dealing with Lyme disease. And um, I'm also in conversation with Cindy tonight at the last bookstore. So um, we're with some of the women working with her. And my mom is actually here too. She's taken a couple of days off work to sort of help me and be around me um, because I've had a pretty hellish uh, couple months <laughs> of, yeah. So, well, let's talk about your health then. Um, I mean, you write, as I said in the intro, about never feeling comfortable with your own body um, from a very young age. You start the book saying this. Uh, what's your earliest memory of feeling uncomfortable? Uh, my earliest memory of feeling uncomfortable was, um, I mean, my whole my whole childhood here in um, the Pasadena area where I grew up, I had these really, really intense convulsions at night, and it was something that I never really told anyone about. And in the book, I kind of talk about it as like tremors, um, because I knew that term from all the earthquakes we were having when I was really young. So I felt that sense of unwellness. I didn't know myself if it was anxiety or what, but I was almost always not sleeping. Um, we were pretty re- recent refugees from Iran. And so I had sort of just accepted that panic and anxiety and sadness were part of my condition. By the time I was in my early teens, um, I fainted and and had like near fainting episodes pretty regularly. And, you know, we went to a, a GP here, you know, in the 80s in L.A. who would just was very blasé about it all and said, oh, yeah, they found out I had mitral a valve prolapse. Um, but they didn't really make any connections to trauma or the mold that was very visible in the little uh, apartment that I grew up in and sort of the bad side of town in, in Pasadena. And they didn't really look further, you know, uh, I, 
also like, you know, at that point, I remember my parents would tell the doctor that like, you know, they fed me a very American diet, which they thought was good, you know, which was a lot of fast food. For a lot of my early years, we'd get uh, two two hot dogs from Wiener Schnitzel was my dinner and soda. And, uh, you know, that was seen as good. That was, and <laughs> so I, and then occasionally if my mother had time, she'd make like a Persian meal, but they were really struggling. They had no money and um, they were trying to figure out America. They didn't have perfect language skills, you know, so I don't really blame anyone, but there were very, very hard circumstances. And so when was the first sense that you may have had, um, rather than these different symptoms, physical and, and psychological, that you may have had some serious disease? And when did you first start trying to seek that out, seek out sort of um, uh, a diagnosis? Yeah, in the summer of 2006, when um, it was just shortly after I'd gotten a book deal for my first novel, um, I moved back to uh, L.A. when my parents were in in our old Pasadena apartment then. Um, They've just recently moved to this condo in Glendale. Um, And I went back and thought I would do, you know, edits on my first novel that just sold on Grove Atlantic. And I was very excited. And it was the first time I'd gotten like a chunk of money that, you know, wasn't a lot, but it was more than I ever knew. And I, I was really excited. And I got to LA and I, within a few days, I lost my ability to sleep entirely. And I had had, like I said, some insomnia my whole life, but this was very weird. I actually couldn't remember how to sleep. Um, within a few days, other symptoms started showing up. So then, you know, there were some ERs, some doctor's offices. I had some gastritis, all sorts of things were popping up and people were just like, are you stressed? I was like, of course. Are you depressed? Sure. Are you anxious? You know, all those things I could say yes to. So I ended up following them on a fully psychiatric route. And so all the doctors were like, we got to fix your sleep first. And so I was put on a lot of really uh, strong hypnotic sedatives and benzodiazepines to control my sleep. I was also, you know, they tried me out on lots of antidepressants and things like that. And I just deteriorated more and more and more. Um, So that that was, you know, I came back to LA in June. By um, October, I was many, many pounds lighter, could barely speak, could barely move. Um, Yeah. But before we move on, you, you phrased that in an interesting way. You said that you'd forgotten how to sleep or you didn't remember how to sleep. Yeah. Can can you uh, just, uh, it was an interesting phrasing. Can you kind of describe what you mean by that in practice, what that means? Um, when I, I still remember that first night that I got to, um, went to bed and I literally, I, I was clearly having some major neurological problem, but I actually didn't know how it worked. Like I didn't, I knew I could shut my eyes you know, and, and have like a glass of camel tea and try to just fall asleep like I normally did. But I actually couldn't, I couldn't access it. I didn't know if you fall back into sleep, fall forward into sleep. I didn't know how it worked. And that I had never really experienced in my life. I'd been anxious as an insomniac before, but I, I remember very vividly that day I was exhausted. I'd gone to a big yoga class. I'd run a bunch of errands, but Something prevented me from that. And, you know, I've recently had some some of this type of Lyme insomnia, and it's uh, it's brutal. It's something, you know, very clearly has to do with neurotoxicity. And you just, it's it's not like the insomnia that I know most people deal with or that I've even dealt with when I've had 
um, when I've been in Lyme remission and had some, say, anxiety or whatever. So eventually you are diagnosed with late-stage Lyme disease. Can, can For people who don't know about this stuff, which included me until I read your book, I mean, can you, can you explain why it's such a, a complicated disease and why there's so much debate in the medical community about it? Yeah. So the first time I got diagnosed with it was um, three years later, and who knows, it might have been from 2006, but we had sort of not looked into Lyme when 2006 happened. And but I was in 2009, I was back on my feet a little bit and teaching in rural Pennsylvania. And um, I, my boyfriend and I had gone to a uh, sort of a mini summer vacation to Mexico. And we came back. He had five mosquito bites. I had 83. But one, he was from Connecticut, and he thought one of my bites looked suspect. And he sort of saw it as a bullseye rash. And he said, you know, maybe we should go to the ER. And I thought that was ridiculous. You know, I was a California person. I didn't know much about ticks or anything. I'd, you know, been sort of new to hiking and camping and all that. Um, but when we went to the ER there in Pennsylvania, they took it pretty seriously, but they they didn't think, they weren't sure. They ran the the sort of basic test, and I don't remember if it came out positive or not. It was, it was sort of dismissed, but they said, in case, you should take a couple of weeks of doxycycline, and then we'll do some more tests and results will come. And so that time, a few months later, we did find out that I tested positive for Lyme, and I was put on a couple months of antibiotics. Um, I even had, like, Lyme arthritis. I was at the writer's residency Yado, and I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs. I got back to Pennsylvania, and an infectious disease doctor we were seeing there, who's called Dr. E in the book, kind of told me, don't, don't go chasing this too far. You've had other things like Parvo, you know, you probably treated the Lyme. It's probably fine. Just don't, you know, he was interested in my whole history, but he but he wanted to set some limits on it. So I got off the antibiotics and I actually got started having um, a lot of symptoms in the next few months, which I did not connect to Lyme. I had severe anxiety, panic disorder, all sorts of stuff at a time in my life where I was really otherwise like very happy. And so... Okay, like still we're we're thinking Lyme's been treated. I don't have Lyme, and then flash to the to 2011 and 12, where I had my most acute health plunge, and I was a fellow in Germany. On the plane ride there, I would literally had an abscess on my head from a pilar cyst that had burst, which we again did not connect to anything that had to do with my immune system. I spent some months teaching there, and I started having these really weird collapses on the streets of Leipzig, which we couldn't tell. Are they seizures? Are they um, like a sort of diabetic shock? Because I had blood sugar issues. I had everything. And uh, no one could tell what it was. And I was hospitalized in an endocrinology ward at in, in the hospital in Leipzig, and they could not figure it out. Even though I, I look back, and I think it's such a missed opportunity because Germany actually has a really good um, – they, they have pretty great recognition of Lyme now and, and a lot of great doctors who deal with it. But, you know, they they didn't. And, and I, my mother had to fly out to Germany, help me pack my my um, my uh, room there in the guest faculty guest house. They did find black mold there. So we thought that was just it. And it was just black mold. And that was a whole ordeal getting back to California from there, getting rid of my stuff. But we didn't realize the black mold and Lyme connection, which I now know well and I'm suffering from at the moment. Um, 
it took another six months of us being in California, me going to therapists. I mean, every GP on the planet doing autoimmune tests. I mean, it was just an insane runaround until we got to a doctor um, in Malibu who was dealing specifically with Lyme. And he ran tests at Igenix Labs, which is sort of the premier Lyme lab in the country. I mean, like everything Lyme, there's controversy. But, you know, I, I found out through that that I had pretty unequivocal Lyme and CDC recognized Lyme. Why is it such a controversial, contested thing? Mm, because you've got the CDC and the FDA, which have never been very co cooperative with the recognition of the disease, not to mention the treatments. And then you've got a whole, you know, this is a global thing. I mean, there's mainstream treatments in Germany that they don't do here, that that they look at like they're crazy. But in Germany, people have been doing them for quite a while, and they work. Um, you know, I go to lots of places that seem a little bit off the grid in the States to get treatment because just conventional antibiotic therapy, while it did help, is not enough for my system. Um so you, you and then within the whole field of Lyme, because they don't understand it so much, because so much research was halted, because yes, there was an ant a vaccine at one point, and anti-vaxxers kind of felt it give they gave them migraines or whatever, so that went away. Not to mention there were a lot of conspiracy theories around it. I mean, all these factors have made it so that um, there's just continual controversy. Uh, people barely want to accept there's anything other than acute Lyme, which is something like if you catch, right, you have the bullseye rash and you catch within a week or two, you can get on some doxycycline and, and you're usually better and you have a high quality of life like anyone. But the, pro the problem is that most people don't get it diagnosed in time, the vast majority. And they turn into someone like me who has had so much systemic damage that you really have two, two routes. Are you going to treat all the systemic damage individually or are you going to go for the larger um, disease? And um, yeah, it can, it can, you know, I, I think now people understand this can actually really kill you. And, and it can kill you directly, not, not just because like maybe it makes your body more hospitable for cancers, that they used to say. When you look back on now sort of your health issues going back a long time, how how do you sort of characterize it or conceive of it in your mind? Um, how much of a how much do you attribute it to the Lyme disease? Um, how much do you attribute it to other things and sort of the bad luck of someone who was born having um, these health issues also picking up Lyme disease? I mean, do you have a way that you kind of categorize it all in your head? I mean, I think I'm actually very lucky. That's how I see it. Because if I didn't have access to, say, crowdfunding and some, or, or initially when I got Lyme at an NEA that year, um, I've never had a lot of money, but I've just had enough that I could pursue um, getting better. And so with someone like me where, you know, doctors will look at blood work every time and something pretty intense comes up every time, um, for me to be sitting here with a studio with you and being able to speak, you know, it's that that's a lucky person, in my opinion, uh, because I, I could have been dead many, many, many years ago. And I came very close many, many times. Uh, so I that the way that I even though I'm frustrated by all these years of doctors not getting places, I'm even frustrated now with my best doctors 
and something's going too slow or them trying things out on me that doesn't work. And, you know, it's, it's a mess. It's very hard to, to treat. But on the whole, I, I really see myself as lucky, even with the car accidents in that book that I talk about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you write in the book, it was the first time that it occurred to me that wealthy people had such options, how with money you could actually take a stab at life no matter how bad the odds. Exactly. Um, we're, so, it, you know, from reading your book, there are a number of times where, where this comes up. Um, did How much did, did your illness, um, I mean, you sort of started to talk about this, make you think about some of the disparities in our health system and, and what money really can buy? Yeah, I mean, that that's just like everything. Um with the sort of treatments for Lyme, they're like, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. Most people like, you know, hear that I've been, you know, it's cost me over 140000 That's a pretty conservative estimate. It's probably closer now to 200000 or more. Who knows? Um, I, it's, it's extremely expensive. I mean, the first place to, get, to have gotten those hygienics tests that I did um, in 2012, at that point, the, the, the various tests they did came out to be like $4,500. And so most people, including myself, normally would never have that sort of money. So I can't, there could be so many more people than we know who are sick with Lyme. Um, the test you do in ER, the ELISA, Western blot tests don't always pick it up. So, you know, who knows how many people with psychiatric disorders or physical disorders actually have Lyme and will never actually be able to know that and will never actually get the sort of direct treatment that will will save their life. It's gutting. I mean, there's a reason why people roll their eyes at it sometimes. They see all the celebrity culture and all that. And that's not to say that this is a disease that only celebrities make up for attention. It's just that they, you see a lot of them talking about it because they were able to be diagnosed and to pursue the really expensive treatments. Um, so your your book is is several things. One of which is kind of a narrative of your own illness and how you and your life and how you dealt with it. But it's also a meditation on some other things. And one of them, um, one of kind of the running themes of the book is how people deal with sick people. And I just want to read you a passage because I thought it was really interesting. Read read listeners a passage, and then have you talk about it. The deal with so many chronic illnesses is that most people won't want to believe you. They will tell you that you look great, that it might be in your head only, that it is likely stress, that everything will be okay. None of these are the right things to say to someone whose entire existence is a fairly consistent torture of the body and mind. They say it because they are well-intentioned usually, because they wish you the best, but they also say it because you make them uncomfortable. Your existence is evidence of death, and no one needs to keep seeing that, especially not the people who gave birth to you. They are not supposed to live to see you not live. It's not the way nature is supposed to work after all. So can, can you can you talk about um, what being sick and, and sort of viewing people through the lens of how they dealt with your illness, um, some, of the, some of the things that, that you felt that you learned or that you, you watched um, during your illness? Yeah, I mean, it's brutal. It's something I'm still living right now in the slime relapse moment too, because for instance, I'm very thin right now and everybody keeps saying I look great. And or that don't worry, you're not that thin. And I'm like, wow, I've like lost like 20 pounds pretty recently. Like I lost 10 pounds in one week. Like, I don't think this is something to applaud. I feel uncomfortable in my body. Um, and, you know, like my as I said, my mother's with me here, but it took a long time for her to recognize me as someone that was sick. My own father still thinks like it's overblown when I especially talk about mold and things like that. I mean. It's really hard for 
this is this is the dilemma of being human and selfhood, right? We don't really know how it feels inside anyone else's head. And as humans, I was going to say as Americans, but I think this goes further than that, we're not very good at listening to people. We're very good at like airing what we have to say, but we're not the best listeners. And we don't always want to believe someone. Like when someone says, I don't feel well, they're like, oh, come on, be positive. Or, oh, you sure you do? You know, they don't want to hear that. So you have two choices, like, you know, fake it till you make it, which can only go so far if you're sick, right? Or uh, or just to, like, really um, become crushed by that. And my depression and anxiety had everything to do with people not believing me. You know, the pain of the, the, the illness was bad enough, but the worst part was just not being really heard. Well, but it's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's two things, right? It's It's people not believing you, and that's people in your own life or people in people, doctors or something, but it's also maybe people believing you, but it's awkward to confront the fact yeah. that they would believe you, right? It's, it's both of those things. Yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's yeah, fair. it is awkward um, because it's such a weird illness in some ways. It's not like a, like a flu that most people get. Um, it, it spooks them too. I mean, you talk about like hallucinations or, um, you know, I feel like you'll have like weird neuropathies or, you know, all sorts of things. And it's just so abnormal for people that it, um, it's terrifying, I think, for them. And I think also people are scared of getting it too. I mean, now that the CDC is being more generous and understanding um, how many people actually are ill, I think people are getting more and more scared when I see like animosity online, when I talk about Lyme. I can see that people are just a little fearful because we know it's a massive epidemic, not just in the Northeast, not just in America, but around the world. And I think people think are, are terrified. And, and, and you know what? They should be. <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of things are terrifying about life right now. But it, um, yeah, I think that's that you're absolutely right to point that out. That awkwardness is um, goes past, I think, just like etiquette. But it goes really to the core of like fear about mortality and things like that. Have you noticed it? Have you noticed distinctions with different cultures about this? I mean, obviously, your yeah. family, uh, you were born in Tehran and yeah. your family comes from Iran and you lived in Germany. Is, is America kind of in wanting to tiptoe around these things unique in some way or is this more universal um, feeling awkward about confronting these matters? Well, I often joke that like Iran is like the America of uh, the Middle East. So a lot of the problems in Iranian culture are very similar to problems in American culture um, in that, you know, just like uh, sort of smiling away problems or pushing them under the rug or, you know, that that there's a lot of that. Right. Um, And I think like, you know, also Iranian culture can be very Occidentalist. So most people I know, I mean, will encourage you to trust Western medicine. And you can do that to some degree with Lyme, but it's not the whole story. Um, I think I, I really don't know about um, too many Eastern cultures. I've only been hearing snippets here and there. I know in, in Germany and in Scandinavia and Australia, they're taking it extremely seriously right now and being very aggressive about um, – about it. And I think part of it comes from them watching and seeing this fail in the U.S. I mean, anecdotally, I've heard things like 
everyone in uh, Germany's black forest population tests positive for Lyme. But they actually don't know why they don't get the symptoms that Americans get. And the only theories that I've heard doctors talk about is like, well, healthy lifestyle, you know. You need, you need something to be triggered in your system for the Lyme to manifest like it does with me. So mold is one or other environmental stressors or, or other stressors in general. But in Germany, like, like, you know, if you're living in the Black Forest and you have limited uh, contact with lots of toxins and you're eating a fairly organic diet and you don't have too many EMFs, yeah, sure, you can actually, like, maybe live pretty well with this disease. Your immune system might be that great. Um, I've lived a fairly stressful life and a lot of travel in recent years and a lot of scrambling and not always being able to afford clean eating because that's another thing people don't get. It's really, really expensive to be treated for this illness, but just it's expensive to be chronically ill and follow the directives on that. You know, it's eating organic or trying these various diets. You know, it's not cheap. You know, I just bought a juice the other day that was like $11. You know, like that's not practical for anyone, I would think. You mentioned your parents, and in the book you talk about them, and, and you write, sort of continuing on what I was reading earlier, quote, when my mother admitted she saw me as sick, I cried for hours. She thought she had done something wrong, but I let her know it was the opposite. To be seen, to be heard, to exist wholly, whether in beauty or ugliness, by a parent often felt like another big step to wellness. I sense your mother's probably in the room right now, but- uh, No, she's outside. How... She's having water and stuff in the other room. Yeah, oh, good. Well, she that. won't hear this, so you, okay. can give a, you can give an honest answer. Um, yeah. So- how how um you can talk about more why that was so important but all and and the complications of it um also i think we also sometimes don't want to or, or your book is is a reversal in some ways cuz i think often we don't want to seem vulnerable to our parents but but you you kind of put forward the opposite but i was also curious what she thought of the book itself well actually my parents and i have had an agreement for them not to read it um and, you know, they've dealt with years of, you know, seeing and reading my essays online. So it doesn't surprise them that I write about them and in ways that they sometimes don't love, but, you know, <laughs> acknowledge that it's true. Um, I think like both we just, I, I just thought this isn't a book really for them. You know, we've already, it's, they wouldn't be surprised by anything in the book. We've all discussed that to, to a, a very uh, exhausted extent, but we, um, this is really for others. You know, this wasn't even a book I really even wanted to write. This was for me something that people asked of me. And I felt, okay, like I have to write this then because people need this book. So that that's that's that. Like they're they're definitely like not reading it, but they're kind of seeing the press about it and and um and I think that's really nice. I think that's a respectful because I know it'll be painful for them. I I know my brother had read it and told them that like it'll be like maybe too sad for them. I think also because I talk so much about suicidal ideation and things like that, um, which maybe they, they never really fully um, internalized. Um, the, the other thing is that you were asking is um, about that quote with my mom. And yeah, I think, you know, vulnerability has always been something that I've seen as a strength. And it's something that I really believe in for myself, you know, and how I present to the world, because I'm pretty big on honesty and really honest communication. I just told a friend the other day, like, I just hate mystery and I hate people obscuring things and hiding things because it impedes direct communication, which is extremely hard anyways. Um, 
But I really, um, I felt being recognized for my illness by my, my parents or friends was really, really important because it let them see where I was at. It let, let me be believed. And that's the only thing you've got when you're in this sort of pain. You just want people to believe you and to to know that that this is real and that, you know, you're that feeling of being gaslighted, like you're just making things up and there's some weird thing in your head. I mean, it, it, that's that's a nightmare in itself. So I have been really moved by my mom understanding that. And even though she, you know, wishes I was better, she she knows my limitations. And that means a lot to me. And having friends like that, too, means a lot to me. So a lot of the illness and disability communities, their, their uh, presence in my life almost daily, whether often online, has been really, really important. It's interesting in that context that uh... – I mean, just the two things you just said, and I don't, I don't mean this as a criticism of it, it's just interesting that being recognized is so important and the sort of seeing the vulnerability, but also you guys made a made an agreement not to, not to read the book because at one level, it seems there's a certain tension there, even though they sort of both make sense on their own terms, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the tension really there is just like there's some things that they didn't know maybe about like um, – like my depression and suicidal ideation and drugs and right. even gender and sexuality. I mean, that's sort of the stuff that like, like for instance, I don't come from a culture like, and I'm not saying Iranian culture in general. I don't come from in my immediate world. It was never important to me to like really come out to my parents or I just never have involved them in issues of my like um, how I identify as queer or not. Like that just isn't something we talk about. I don't have any hope of like, especially with my dad, having any of that be really um, something that will go well. So I just avoid it. Um, and I'm 40. So, but that's something, you know, I'm okay with. I don't need everybody to see eye to eye with me. So there's issues around that that I just don't think they'd fully like grasp. The stuff about being sick or being in hospitals and all that, I think they know it's in there. Um, there's a critique of them in the book, just like there's a critique of me and my friends and, and the whole medical industry in America um, that maybe could be painful for them. But I, I doubt they'd be surprised by that. Right. Yeah. Just for people who haven't read the book, you talk about your relationships with both men and women uh, mm -hmm. during this time, uh, which you referred to. Um, I want to ask you one other thing from the, from the book, which is there's a very powerful line, um, which I was hoping you could expand on, which actually comes at the end of a chapter where you say, I sometimes wonder if I would have been less sick if I had had a home. And well, just when you hear that line again now, what, 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 do, you, what do you think? It's funny, that line really, um, I, had, I read it at a reading last night and it just like hit me really hard because I'm now in sort of the peak of that statement. I literally don't have a home right now. Um, I had to leave my, you know, the apartment in Harlem, which is sort of this happy haven in that book. Um, I had to leave it a few months ago because of illegal demolition that happened in that building. And so the unit above me and next door to me, they were just tearing into, and it's a 140-year-old building. And so part of my bathroom wall collapsed, and there was lead, asbestos, God knows what. You know, they hadn't done demolition like that in ages. Um, if ever, you know, people, many, many black families were born in that building and um, we're all rent stabilized and we have a really brutal management that didn't want to do anything. So 
I was like losing my mind these last few months being in that space. And I had just left my parents' space, which ha- they found out had some mold too during winter break. So my whole existence in the last few months has been crashing with various friends all around the country, um, having very few clothes, having very few little access to my um, possessions, and literally having no home. Um, I actually have like mentioned a reading sometimes hoping like someone will have some solution for that or they live in a space that's fairly um, chemical free and, and, and maybe there'd be an option for me. I don't know. I, I literally have no idea where I'm going to move or what I'm going to do. So it's um, it's sort of funny to me that that's in that book because there's a lot of discussion of like, like my my transience and even like metaphorically. But I'm in, a, in the most literal expression of that sentence at the moment. Yeah, I mean, in the in the book, it kind of comes at the end of um, the end of a passage uh, where you kind of talk about how things in the news kind of cause your your relapses. Um, and and you just write for for people who haven't read the book, quote: When I feel myself getting sicker as a result of the news, a part of me panics. Is this just psychological? Was it just PTSD all along? Were some of those early doctors right? The ones who just thought I was crazy? How could my body erupt in a chaos of spiro? I don't I don't even know how to pronounce that word. Spirochetes. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Each time my mind and body suffers. How does that work? And yet we continue to find evidence of the mind and body connection, um, which which is kind of one of the, I mean, even even the main theme of the book, um, that connection and and how it how it impacted you and you as a writer. Yeah. Um, sorry, I lost the thread on the question a little bit. Yeah. No, there was no yeah, question. Yeah, actually, no, no. I was just uh, I yeah. uh, I should have uh, I should have asked a more direct question, but I um I just wanted people to hear that passage. Yeah. Let me let me just ask you one more question before sure. you go. Um, before we go, which is uh about illness and the internet, and I know you're you're somewhat active online, and I'm curious, uh, being someone dealing with with sickness as kind of the internet rose um, and you I've read about people kind of finding communities on the internet, um, people who share the same illness, the same sickness. What has that been like for you? Has it been, has it been a help in, in certain ways? Yeah, it's funny today. I was thinking, God, I really wish I could just block out a lot of Twitter at the same time. I'm someone who's always been really like informed. I love Twitter and I love to know about what's going on in the news, but I've had to like, step back from some of it because I've also been an activist for much of my life. But recently I felt like it's really been killing me and and in a way more important to me is how much it's caused um, suicidal ideation, in fact, some suicides among people in my communities. So I've had to like step away from that. However, it's also like where a lot of sick people are. I mean, if you think about it this way, a lot of us are like literally lying on beds and looking, scrolling, um, because we just can't do much else. You know, we can't go to work always, or we can't even, like, create. I mean, sometimes I've been really mentally messed up, but I somehow can tweet, but I can't really write sentences. Um, And I've talked to different friends of mine about this, and they have the same experience, and we don't really know why. Um, But, you know, that the whole book came about because in – 2011 12 I was reaching out to people on Facebook and there wasn't a lot of illness communities there then or at least not ones I had access to and so you know I'd have selfies of myself like the book cover you know with like a nasal cannula and 
And then I'd ask for advice because I literally couldn't find it online. And so I'd connect with sick people all the time. And it was them who said to me, you know, you've written these other things and you have a gift with words. Why don't you write about your, your journey? And I was kind of like, huh, no, I don't want to. You know, I never even suspected to be an um, an essayist. You know, I thought of myself as having two modes that were like journalist and novelist and then things like teacher and activist. But I was um, I was quite hesitant. And um, and uh, then I wrote the book, you know, and, I, and and what's been interesting is that I was for months in dread of touring and I just did not want to do it. I didn't even want to hear a passage from the book. I didn't want to think about it and it was such a painful experience writing it but the experience of actually reading from it and meeting people um and and doing some of the touring has been actually really heartening and and um really beautiful to me i've met really a lot of those people online um that i've known for years i've met in person and some of them come to these readings at huge in huge pain and, and its expense and you know i've met people that have taken very long trips to see me and, and people with brain cancer and people with all sorts of, of um, the overlapping diagnoses that you'd find in this book. Um, and that's been amazing for me. It's been so transformative because I myself am basically not well enough to be doing this. And them in the audience, they're not really well enough to be doing this too. But guess what? We're not well enough to be lying in bed either <laughs> and being like on Twitter either. So it, it's just like you have to choose like how you can spend your hours very, very methodically and deliberately when you have an illness and that we've chosen to do these things, you know, that, I, that I'm even like here doing this radio interview at a day of like horrific air quality and, <laughs> and all that. And I, um, this, I don't know, it's, it's, um, sorry, it's, uh, yeah, it's like really emotional no, it's, for me. Uh, it's like uh, a big, it's My a... last question was going to be, you know, how the book tour had been uh, for you and as part of this whole experience. And it sounds like in many ways it's been, it's been wonderful, which uh, I'm really glad about. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing. I've never had um, re like packed houses People always think that's like not true because I've had a lot of press in the past with my novels, but I've never had packed houses. I've rarely had sold out events or people buying the books or it's been kind of amazing. I keep thinking no one's going to show up. And I even remember telling my publisher like, you know, whatever, people are probably not going to really come out for this book. But um, it's been pretty crazy um, to see people there and. It's just their, them believing in me and, and me trying to believe in them. And this whole thing of connecting right now at a time when America can feel so unbearable, especially for people with disability and illness. Um, this is a lot. This, this you know, talk about the mind-body connection. It doesn't, it doesn't heal us. But it at least lets me feel the um, some degree of peace um, knowing that there's others there. And that was really one of my big goals with this book is that we could just all feel a little less alone. There's no solutions in the book. I don't have a solution for my illness. I don't know what literally tomorrow is going to look like, much less, you know, a month a month later or a, a few years later. Um, I was, I just did the last interview I did like this, I did on a stretcher in New York City in an ER room. Um, so, you know, you don't know. But what's beautiful is this time that you can spend with others that, um, when I think we're so lonely in our culture. And so that's been really nice for me.
The book is Sick, a memoir. Uh, Porchista, thank you so much for coming on the program, and uh, it's great to uh, meet you, even if uh, over the uh, over the phone. Thank you so much, Isaac. I feel the same. I'm, I'm really honored. Thank you for your great questions. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. And thanks to the extra engineering help this week from Lyra Smith and Little Everywhere Studios in Los Angeles. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at iChotner. Thanks so much for listening.